This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, Politics About the Boring Bits, 10 till 1, Monday to Friday on Times Radio. Listen on your DAB radio on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode is the latest exit interview, this time with Labour MP Dame Margaret Hodge as she prepares to leave the House of Commons. That's coming up in just a moment, but first, we kick off with the columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, now normally on a Monday we'd have Libby Waitchie, but Waitchie's not here. Uh, So we have got Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby. Hello. And joining me in the studio, Ian Martin. Hello, Ian. Hi there. Okay, let's talk about luck. And uh, the way to sort of it feels to pull together all the strands of what's been going on is, is Keir Starmer the luckiest man in Britain? Boris Johnson blowing up the Tory party, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP blowing themselves up, uh, opening the way to by-elections, shifts in polls. Yeah. Uh, coming back, what do you think? Is he, is he, is it... And all this, actually, despite any abilities on his own, you know, it's, we still don't know about his full five missions, uh, and yeah. yet it's all coming good. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. I think, actually, we are finding out more about him. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course, he's very, very lucky. Lucky in another respect last week in that he made a major policy U-turn, ditching that £28 billion um, pound, uh, green splurge that Ed Miliband had promised, and it, it all sort of disappeared under the cover of all this other stuff going on. But I think it also suggests that not only is he lucky, he is starting to get, uh, or Labour is starting to get its act together. And it's clear, we talk about the Tories being a ruthless party, but now Labour under Keir Starmer is incredibly serious about creating the right impression, um, prepared to sacrifice policies like Ed Miliband's green splurge when required. Uh, and yeah, so lucky, but also increasingly determined and quite skillful, I think, as leader of the opposition. It's interesting, that, Libby, we didn't see Keir Starmer at all over the weekend. And actually, 12 months ago, at the height of Partygate, he was constantly calling press conferences to appear on camera and, be, and actually be a bit weird. You just think, what, stop trying to insert yourself into the story. And it does feel like they've learned that lesson a bit. Yes, I think so. But he's not a good man at picking up his luck and running with it, really. It'll be very interesting to see what happens at this couple of by-elections now coming up. Um, I suspect some Lib Dem gains, if if not wins. But one thing that he's done recently, which has not perhaps been mentioned quite enough, is this um, 
anything to do with the infrastructure, we are prepared to overrule and withdraw the ability to object by local towns and villages, you know, if there's a massive important infrastructure project. Now, we're sitting here on the edge of the Sizewell Sea, which there's a lot of protest against, um, and also the carving through the Suffolk coast by uh, National Grid, which basically wants to sort of run great trenches and and uh, pylons <laughs> and huge substations in areas of outstanding national beauty. And we were just on the verge here of thinking we might be able to get rid of Therese Coffey, the sewage queen, as our MP, <laughs> because she's been so hopeless on all these things. But everybody now knows that Labour would be dictatorially more uh, prone to carve through the coast and bang up power stations people don't want. So I think it, it's interesting. You know, the, the luck is it's constituency by constituency. That's the glory of democracy. You, know, you can't sort of say overall because the big media think Keir is lucky. He's lucky. He might not be that lucky. Well, let's look at the, the unlucky ones then. Let's take them in, uh, in turn. Let's first of all look at um, poor Hubsy Youssef. Uh, gets, yeah. the, gets the top job and then immediately it all goes horribly wrong. And in fact, this was him on uh, uh, on the BBC yesterday, uh, ju- <laughs> just a few hours before we got the news about Nicola Sturgeon. She's in a good place and doing well, uh, for sure. Um, but also, yes, of course, why would I not want to get uh, some advice uh, from, uh, I think, arguably one of the best politicians and most impressive politicians Europe has seen uh, over the last couple of decades? Not, she, just, not just Scotland, not just Britain, but yeah. the whole of Europe. Yeah. She's in a good place. Um, yeah. That place, a few hours later, turned out to be a police station. <laughs> um, yeah, I know we have to be very careful how we, how we talk about this. But yeah, he has been, he's has perfect timing uh, uh, for just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, it, to become first minister in these circumstances was, was bad enough. But he does have a reputation in Scotland for being accident for, for being accident prone and I mean a tough job to do following Salmond and Sturgeon who yeah. are both giants of British politics uh, big figures from the last 25-30 years but um, I think al- although Labour is not is, is not anything it's not ahead in Scotland it's making sufficient progress that I think you can now upgrade I know pollsters argue about this but I think the expectation must be that you can upgrade Labour's projections about how it will do in Scotland, substantially, actually, there are quite a lot of seats that could that could fall with a slightly bigger um, swing. Of course, the reality of Scottish politics is that no matter what's happening with Nicola Sturgeon or what happens next, there's still about a third to 40% of Scots who will vote for the SNP no matter what and believe in independence. The failure of Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond was to was to the failure to convince the middle ground to turn 35, 40% into a clear 60 percent. So really, the um, away from all the human drama, the reality is that the the nationalist push has kind of failed, and there isn't going to be a referendum for a long time. And I suspect that the the next first minister of Scotland will probably be um, a Labour first minister. Actually, the last person to be um, Scottish first minister and not be arrested was Jack McConnell, who left in 2007. Yeah. Both have been arrested uh, <laughs> since. And actually, the thing is that even if, and we don't know what's going to happen with this police investigation, but if it, if it comes to nothing and the police say, look, we've looked into it all and that's all, all done and dusted, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. To a lot of voters in Scotland, the SNP are now like every other political party. You know, with with you know, it turns out Nicola Sturgeon can't walk on water. There are you know, and it's going to be very difficult to to for people to forget everything that's gone on. 
There are, there's that, and they've also been in power for even yeah. longer than the Tories have, and it's just that it's just the law of political gravity. Eventually, after 10, 14, 15 years, voters become tired of political parties and uh, look for alternatives, and that's what seems to be happening. Yeah. Even if they haven't plumped in a determined fashion yet for Scottish Labour, they're in the market for an alternative. Yeah. Um, Libby, you can't help but think, you know, Hunter Yousaf only stepped forward after Nicola Sturgeon dramatically uh, resigned. I mean, clearly really wanted the job. And he's, I mean, it would be better if he didn't keep repeating the question, is the SNP a criminal enterprise? Uh, because well, but it, it's, how about, what about somebody asking, is the SNP actually competent? Look yeah. at their record in education. Look at their record in health. I mean, again, talking about people who have been a long time in power, just like the Tories down south, you know, not impressive, not impressive at all. It must be really hard to be a sincere believer in Scottish independence, uh, not only when you have these sort of dodgy, you know, sort of big, sort of uh, lorry things, what they called uh, dormobiles parked outside people's mothers' <laughs> in-laws houses you know and the fact that education and health and you know rates of addiction and so on have been so poorly dealt with under the SNP you know it's it's really difficult I mean I can understand why one might want to be independent but un independent under this lot yeah and that's 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 why it's uh, increasingly hard so well let's talk about the other guy who's unlucky then uh, Rishi Sunak, just when he thought he was getting back on the front foot, again, you know, big announcement today on AI instead, thrown off having to answer questions about Boris Johnson. Do we think Boris Johnson will take the advice? Uh, this was the Tory MP uh, Tim Lawton, speaker of Times Radio yesterday. My hopes for the future of Boris Johnson is he'll shut up and go away and let us get on with the business of running the country. I mean, this is, I mean, I just, uh, well, whatever. <laughs> Libby, do you think Boris Johnson will shut up and go away and leave Rishi Sunak to it? No, I think Michael Gove said, I think, on, on Times Radio that no doubt Boris would continue to contribute in his own way, which would <laughs> really bring everybody sort of a, a terrible shudder. But I mean, I have read in the last few days uh, about seven pieces within the Times and Sunday Times about how absolutely dreadful and awful and appalling and selfish and dreadful and hopeless and muddled Boris Johnson is. And I think everyone should now stand back and acknowledge that even if we personally didn't vote for him, the country voted for a Tory party led by Boris. The Tory members chose him. Given their next chance after his disaster, they chose Liz Truss. Is everybody's judgment being hopelessly skewed by something? Maybe by the age of gossip and image, by, by the way media collaborate in all this. You know, is it therefore time for the deeply boring Keir Starmer? Um, you know, because we, he, he was chosen. He was, he was the chosen one, Boris. Um, and, and look what's happened. You know, it's catastrophe. In quite um, different circumstances. And I often try, as someone who voted for... Brexit regards myself as a moderate Brexiteer, still glad that, that, glad that Britain did it. Um, the reason he became Prime Minister in 2019 is because it was an emergency and lots of Brexiteers and lots of Tories feared that the entire thing was about to be lost unless you had this weird um, explosive personality just to blast through all the opposition and to somehow um, deliver the referendum yeah. result, albeit imperfectly as it turned out. On the, that, of course, that's, that was a trade-off. He was being used by Brexiteers and Conservatives, and he was using Brexiteers and Conservatives to um, you know, secure his ambition. He then blew it. I mean, he won uh, an extraordinary victory, partly attributable to, to Jeremy Corbyn, but it shouldn't be understated. It's still 
And if you remember politics 10, 15 years ago, people would speculate would the Tories ever win a serious yeah. majority again? And he did do it. So all, all credit to him. Unfortunately, what happened, and the critics who were correct in saying that he would never change, they were right. And uh, he proved as prime minister, a couple of exceptions aside, his response on Ukraine, and I would say his go ahead on the vaccine. But beyond that, all trust and was lost on the part of the public because it's Britain that's moved yeah, on. Yeah. That's why the Tory party is trying to move on because basically the country and all the polling shows that he's not popular anymore. Exactly. This, is, this is one of these great <laughs> myths that will not die among Tory MPs. I saw some poll of Tory that actually as a leader, he was less popular in 2019 than Theresa May was in 2017. Yes. But Jeremy Corbyn was even less popular. Yes, and uh, because of, that's because of where his support and, uh, was then yes, concentrated. And, and where, uh, where the Brexit... And it is also possible as well to think that he was the only person who could break the Brexit deadlock while being temperamentally ill suited to being a long-term uh, leader of the country. Let's bring in Paul Johnson now uh, from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Morning, Paul. Morning. Um, I want to talk to you about... Boris Johnson laid out his, uh, laid out his criticism of the government over the weekend, uh, accusing the government of not uh, pursuing a trade deal with the US and uh, uh, opposing the economic um, plans as laid out by... Uh, by Rishi Sunak. Um, let's try and sort of un unpack uh, that criticism. There was never going to be a trade deal with the US, was it? In fact, it's the one Barack Obama was right. We were going to be in the back of the queue, he said. Uh, Boris Johnson said it was outrageous. Turned out he was telling the truth. No, it was a ludicrous criticism. I mean, the, the, um, uh, the negotiations that were happening were abandoned by Boris Johnson's government in October 2020. So this has frankly nothing to do with um, uh, decisions made by... Rishi Sunak or the current administration, this was a choice which was made by, essentially forced upon, Boris Johnson himself in October 2020. That's when the negotiations stopped, when he was Prime Minister. Um, on, on the second point, the uh, economic plan, he's um, yet again made this point that uh, he needs to cut taxes. Well, we tried that last um, autumn under Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, and we saw the consequences of that. And we saw uh, that Boris Johnson himself was rightly or wrongly, very keen on big spending. And actually, uh, his government really did see the end of austerity, some really very substantial increases in spending. And it shouldn't need repeating uh, that when you are seeing big increases in spending and an economy that's doing very badly, I'm afraid you can't cut taxes at the same time, as we saw last autumn. <laughs> Um, Ian, what, what did you make of this? We need to show we are making the most of Brexit and we need in the next uh, in the next month to be setting out a pro-growth and pro-investment agenda. We need to cut businesses and personal taxes, not just as pre-election gimmicks, rather than endlessly putting them up, says the man who put up uh, yeah. national insurance to pay for social care. We must not be afraid to be a properly conservative government. Well, it is, uh, to borrow a term from Paul Goodman, the editor of Conservative Home this morning, it is preposterous. It's fundamentally preposterous. He was Prime Minister and look, and had a chance to do these things. Of course, COVID intervened, but the reality is he was a sort of high-spending, low-tax conservative who didn't give any serious thought to economics or political economy. And the reality is now, and he just can't accept this because he wants to blame everyone else, as he always has done, is that it is over. It's over when you look at the opinion polling. The Conservative Party is moving on from him and he's no longer an MP. There isn't going to be some great uprising um, that uh, four or five MPs seem to imagine that there's going to be that the country is just desperate 
there's this real sort of the real country somehow will demand the return of Boris. It is not going to happen. Yeah. He will continue to be a very successful writer and journalist and make a lot of money making very funny speeches. But the one thing he will not be again is prime minister of this country. That will not happen. Libby? Well... Well, I find it's very interesting to be thinking this morning about poor old uh, Silvio Berlusconi, RIP, because he died, he had a long leukaemia, but there is this weird parallel. As the moment someone dies, you look at their biography again. And this is a man who made a big political comeback in spite of sex scandals, allegations of corruption, even a tax fraud conviction. And, you know, we have Trump in America facing criminal charges and still thinking he can come back. And now we have Boris quite clearly on manoeuvres as well. There is something going on on here. There's a theme of people who simply will not give up on ambition and belief that they are the best and they will be back. And I'm afraid Boris Johnson is really thinking that at the moment. And this is probably why there's a slightly sort of panicky outbreak yeah. of articles saying how dreadful he is, you know, almost making him more dreadful than he is, uh, because of this fear that he might he might swing right back again. Paul, I just wanted to ask you as well, there's a point that Ian made uh, a bit earlier, that actually all of this Tory drama has overshadowed the, the Labour U-turn on the 28 billion. Do you think that Labour are, because of all the dramas elsewhere, Labour are sort of getting away with it? Their, their economic policies are not being interrogated in the way that maybe they should? Well, um, yeah, it's, it's quite odd to call that a U-turn because it was frankly never, I mean, it was just practically never possible to increase spending <laughs> by 28 billion in, in one year. So it was very, it, I think where they've ended up, which I, I understand is to get up to 28 billion or to aim to get there by the end of the parliament, um, is frankly how I'd always interpreted what they said before, because there was no other intelligent way of interpreting it. Um, I mean, you look, Labour, if they win the next election, are likely to inherit something that's really very difficult. As we just discussed, taxes are going up to record levels. The economy's growing very slowly. We're spending record amounts on debt interest and um and debt is not on its way down now that's a very difficult um inheritance um now it's possible that labor will turn out to be lucky um the so, a, a lot of the negative economic consequences of brexit will have happened by then we've had you know, <laughs> this last few days aside politics is more stable and i think international investors will look on um you know a sunak um a, a sunak starmer choice rather more favourably than they looked on the Corbyn-Johnson uh, uh, choice. So it may be that things turn out a bit better, but I think the truth is for, for Labour, they're going to have some very, very difficult choices to make. Yeah. Um, and quite understandably at the moment, they've been, they said very little about what those choices will be. Paul, thank you for that. Paul Johnson from the IFS there. Just because Libby mentioned uh, Silvio, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, who uh, it was announced this morning uh, has died. Um, I dug into the archive this morning uh, where I spoke to David Cameron's former press secretary, Gabby Burton, who told me about a trip when David Cameron went to Italy and had dinner with Silvio Berlusconi. He told these extraordinary jokes during the middle, being translated in slow time with a sort of Italian translator. <laughs> he wasn't quite getting it right. I mean, they weren't funny anyway, right? But they were <laughs> really not funny really near the mark jokes. Um, everything was in the tricolor, every meal. Every, so so that's fine, obviously, for a tricolor salad, that's what you'd expect, yeah. but then it carried on. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I always serve everything, sir, must be in the Italian flag. So that was... Um, that's that, amazing. Amazing. Enough. And then we, then, we went on, <laughs> then we went on a tour of the... Uh, well, of the main, what had been the main residence of, of the, um, you know, the, the leaders, but he didn't live there, he pointed out. And um, he said, you know, there's the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs>
two-way mirrors. You'll see two-way mirrors. Ian Martin and Libby Purvis there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next is the exit interview of Dame Margaret Hodge. You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. We've already said... Dame Margaret Eve Hodge is leaving us soon. Born in 1944, the daughter of Jewish refugees who fled Egypt to arrive in Britain... She entered politics as a Labour councillor in Islington in the 1970s, where she received her first death threat. Some guy who we were trying to rehouse threatened to machete me. Becoming a Labour MP in 1994, she backed Tony Blair as leader weeks later because he was a neighbour. We were there first. We were at number 10. They moved into number one. In her exit interview, she assesses all her former bosses, including Gordon Brown. You know, the position he yearned after for decades was his. He didn't know how to do it. And Ed Miliband. I was a David fan. And reveals the truth about the night she confronted Jeremy Corbyn. I'm going to tell him he's an effing anti-Semite. So, Margaret Hodge, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question then, why are you leaving? I think the real question is why have I stayed so long? Because <laughs> I've um, actually been, it's a shocking statistics, but I have been an elected representative this year for 50 years because I did 20 years in local government as a local authority councillor and leader and then came into parliament. And if I tell you why I went into politics in the first place is that I used to do international research. And when I started having babies 
many, many moons ago. In those days, you were expected to stay at home with your baby for the first four or five years of the, of the child's life. And I thought that's what I wanted to do and got, after six weeks, really, really bored. Although I love my children. I've had four and I've got 12 grandchildren, so they're a good thing, but I got really, really bored. And then a friend of mine, who was actually Caldor's daughter, and Caldor was one of the advisors to Harold Wilson at the time, said to me, Margaret, go on the council. It'll keep you sane whilst you're changing nappies. So I thought, okay, a few years on the council whilst I'm going through this period of my life would be a good thing. But politics is a sort of drug. And I stayed and I stayed. And I never really wanted to go to Westminster either. I always thought it was a rather pompous place to be. And I, I'm a doer. I like to get things done. Um, but, you know, I've done 20 years, I did 20 years in, in, in local um, politics. I, uh, in 92, after Labour had lost its fourth general election, I thought, I've had enough of this, went into uh, a job with PricewaterhouseCoopers, actually, because I thought I was seen as loony left and I wanted to show that actually I had a little bit of capability around me. So I thought a, a spell there would enable me then to move on to something else. And I'd always thought, if I really want to, there's this seat in East London which is not very far from where I live. And I thought I might do that. Um, if it came up, I thought she would retire. And then she died. And I'll never forget the night that Joe Richardson died. And I came home and we live on a house with stairs and there were all these post-it notes all up the, uh, up the uh, banister saying, Margaret, you've got to go for it, you've got to go for it. And I remember my heart sinking and thinking, oh my God, I've really got to decide now. And then I thought, if I miss this opportunity, I'll, I'll kick myself. So I went for it got elected, was going to do it only for 10 years, and here we are, done it nearly, getting on for 30 years. I think it's time for me to do the other <laughs> things I want to do with my life. Now in that time, since you've been in the Commons, you've had several bosses, so let's go through them. You were elected in June 1994, literally just after John Smith died. There was a Labour leadership contest uh, underway, and you quite quickly endorsed Tony Blair. Why was that? Oh, well, I'd uh, known Tony Blair forever. Um, he was part of uh, the North London, uh, you know, left lawyers network. My husband was a lefty lawyer too, so <laughs> we, we, we'd known each other. He was a neighbour of mine, actually. It was more than that. He was a neighbour of ours. He, they'd moved into a house. We were there first. We were at number 10. They moved into number one. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, they were two incredibly talented, able politicians, both Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown. But at that point in 94, when John Smith died, it was absolutely clear that Tony Blair, his ability to communicate was much stronger. His vision was more, um, uh, I think, resonated better with, with people. So um, it was obvious I was going to support him. And what was it like at that point in 1994? Like you said, three decades ago now, but all the polls suggesting after a long period of Tory government that Labour were on the cusp of, of power. Does it feel a bit like that again now? Flying back to 94, because I had been so bruised by, you know, 83, 87, 92, that I have to say, in 97, I was a pessimist. I thought, can't be right, can't, we can't be going to win. So, you know, over the moon when, when yeah. we won. So does it feel the same now? I think what it feels now is it's there for the taking. But there's a fantastic mountain to climb. We did so, so badly in 2019. Very different from how we performed in 1992 in the run-up to 97 it was sort of one more heave that was John Smith's sort of view of how of how Labour would come to power I think Tony Blair's reform helped us stay in power for three successful general elections this time round you know we've really got that mountain to climb it seems 
heck of a lot. And although everybody is fed up to the teeth with the Conservative Party and the Conservative governments and the Conservative Prime Ministers as they change every, every two minutes, um, I think we have still got work hard to earn respect that we provide a vision of hope, which we did in 96-97. So that's the task really that um, Keir Starmer's got to uh, fulfil and uh, in the coming 18 months until the general election. I just want to get your your sort of one word. Sum up sum up your your, your previous bosses in a word. So let's start with Tony Tony Blair in a word. Brilliant. Gordon Brown. I think history will be kinder to Gordon than they were to Tony. <laughs> How much more history does there need to be? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think his uh, you know he came in he. He didn't really quite, this is not a one word answer, sorry. Uh, he came in, I don't think you know, he had, you know, the position he yearned after for decades was his. He didn't know how to do it, but I think his, the way he, he managed the economic catastrophe, I think that's what will earn him in history a really, probably better reputation than Tony Blair. So go on, one word for Gordon. Um, I think highly talented. And determined. It's got a lot of words. Uh, that was th that was then followed by Ed Miliband. In a word, I was a David fan. <laughs> Very good. Now, can I just check that in 2015, it says you backed Liz Kendall. Is that a mistake in our records? No, that's correct. And why was that? She was willing to renew Labour and make constantly make it relevant and connect to people where they were at at that time. And then it was followed by Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn in a word? Disaster. Now one, we've got to, uh, we've got to discuss as HR incident listed here, your interactions with Jeremy Corbyn, who was then your boss, when you confronted him in the House of Commons, said to him, you're a anti-Semite and a racist. Is that right? For the record, I didn't swear. You didn't swear? Okay. And the reason it's down as it, it, it was down as that is that I was it, we were at one of these endless, endless uh, vote, voting evenings on Brexit, and uh, we'd known that that day the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party was meeting to discuss whether or not they should adopt the internationally accepted definition of anti-Semitism. And news came in as we were voting that the NEC had rejected it and that Corbyn had tried to put up amendments to it. Everybody else had accepted it except the Labour Party knew better under Jeremy Corbyn. So I was absolutely livid and I had two young men either side of me, two of my friends, and I said, I'm going to tell him he's an effing anti-Semite, a racist. And they both said, go on, Margaret, go for it. And Jeremy was sitting on the front bench and I said, no, no, I'm going to wait for him to come out and I'll do it when he comes out of, out of the chamber. We were just behind the speaker's chair. And they scurried off. I thought, this is real, this is real comradeship. They scurried off. I didn't realise one of them was going to tell a journalist somewhere. And what I said to myself just before I engaged with him was, don't swear, because that will uh, undermine the strength of your arguments. So I didn't swear, but I did call him an anti-Semite racist. He came back, he's sort of passive-aggressive, so he came back couldn't really engage, asked me to look at recommendation 75 for C on page, you know, 154. And I said, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And I also said it was, uh, he'd made it uh, a hostile environment for Jews, the Labour Party. He didn't really engage, so, but I felt I'd done it. And then I must have been shaky. I didn't realise I was shaky. 
because two or three, you know, we were surrounded by a few MPs, not many. One of them came up and said, come on, Margaret, you can have a glass of water. Had a glass of water, went off to the theatre, I was going to the theatre that evening, switched off my phone thinking I'd done it, wasn't having any effect, came out of the theatre, turned on my phone, and maybe you'd rung me as well, but every, every journalist... <laughs> Every journalist in town and run me, I thought, sugar, what has happened? Uh, went home and I did uh, change the record to say that I hadn't sworn you hadn't him. Sworn but that became a sort of, it became a symbolic moment in that um, battle against anti-Semitism in the heart of the Labour Party. I was going to ask the next question on our exit interview list was, what's been the best part of your job and what are you most proud of? Does the, your fight against Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semitism fit into that sort of the list of things you're pleased that you did during your time in the Commons? I wish I never had to do it. Um, I'm more proud of having fought the BMP. Well, yeah, that, was, that, was my, that was next on my list. OK, well... You're, the work that you... Yeah. Yeah, I, so I've always fought racism, and that's been, an, you know, a, a, I'm an immigrant. Uh, uh, my children are the first generation in our family who've never had to flee because of the fear of persecution or, 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 or actual persecution. My parents had to, had to go twice. My parents came out of Europe, went to Egypt, met, met in Egypt. My dad had a, a stone thrown through. He was running a little steel stock holding. And I think, if you think about it, this was 1948, 49, very soon after, after the Holocaust. And we'd lost lots and lots of family in the Holocaust. So I think he took fright and decided that um, uh, we had to get out. And he decided to go to an English-speaking country. We were turned down by Australia, by... America and by Canada. We were four children at the time. So I've got a fifth sibling who was born here in, in the UK. So we were a big family. And the UK was the only people, they were the only people who accepted us. So my dad was forever, you know, grateful to the UK for accepting us as, uh, you know, we weren't quite fleeing from, we weren't asylum seekers, but we were fleeing, fleeing from the fear of persecution. And that fed into why you Fort racism. Fort racism, and particularly the BMP in East London. So I've always felt a bit the outsider mm. because of that. But it's always, the Labour Party was natural home for me. So the age of 18, 16, 17, 16, I think, probably. Um, although my dad was a Tory, so, uh, you know, it was sort of, uh, it was a bit of a rebellion against my family background. But it was because it was anti-racist, it was international in its perception, it was pro-equality. And th that was what drew me to it, which was why, when we had the anti-Semitism, that was so shocking. But why, when we got to the BMP, it was interesting we got to the BMP, because I could have walked away at that point. The BMP won 12 seats on the local authority in 2006. You work that out in ages. I was already getting a bit, little bit past it by then. Although I like to think my best years were in the sixties and seventies, in my sixties <laughs> and seventies. I just couldn't walk away from fighting racism, and I'm really proud of how I actually I changed the way I did my politics. Completely transformed how how I how I, how I operate in, as a politician in a constituency, and I'm really proud that we absolutely annihilated that phase of extreme right wing fascist politics. How did you do that? What was the change you had to make? Everything I did was about did it help me connect, reconnect with my voters? Because it was a it was a protest vote against the Labour Party. Really, you know, we got a Tammany Hall inward-looking Labour Party taking the vote for granted. They were used to not counting the votes in, weighing the votes in for Labour in those days. Uh, Labour Party nationally hadn't dealt with um, things like housing, and we'd had right to buy, which had diminished the social housing stock, you know, for the opportunity for people to have homes. 
Fords was the big local employer. They were cutting back on what they were doing. So, that, you know, people who were used to going to a secure, well-paid, unionized job suddenly found that those opportunities were around. And the condition, the, the quality of life on council estates was pretty dire, you know, needles, um, uh, condoms everywhere, you know, smells of urine in the lifts, all that sort of stuff. And nobody really cared. So you could see why there was a protest vote. Everything I do is connect. And that means I don't go to town hall shindigs and I don't spend my time in trade union meetings or Labour Party meetings, much as I love my colleagues. But, um, <laughs> so everything was, would it help me reconnect? Yeah. So it was a mixture of coffee afternoons, street meetings, door-to-door -door canvassing campaigns. And the, the, the trick was to A, communicate directly. So, you know, a letter to um, a thousand voters asking them to have a cup, cup of tea with me and a chocolate biscuit was was the start of it then listening to them and everybody's politics starts from the local you acted and i could always act on the local issues not always successfully but at least i could li try and then i trying. and yeah. then i communicated again so i wrote back to people and said thank you for coming you can have a cup of tea with me although out of the thousand maybe 50 70 showed not that many but i wrote back to thousand you you raised this issue i've done this is what i've done about it uh, and look forward to having you in welcome you to my next cup of tea. And that sort of builds trust. And taking on the BMP is, you know, can get pretty ugly. How, that, how bad did it get for you? Well, the interesting thing is, so I had ugliness taking on the BMP. I had ugliness taking on anti-Semitism, the Labour Party. I actually had my first death threat in 1976 in Islington Council when, I'd, uh, when I then ran the local housing programme. And some guy who we were trying to rehouse threatened to machete me. So I sort of, you know, that comes with the territory. But with the BMP, there wasn't social media at the time. So actually, my staff protected me from a lot of the, you know, we had a lot of letters, a lot of abusive phone calls, that sort of stuff. Whereas by the time anti-Semitism came, social media was around. But I'll tell you this one shocking story, Matt, which stays with me forever. So I'm trying to write up a little bit about you know, my history of fighting racism, with those two being sort of key moments in my political life. And I had out on my desk doing this um, a leaflet that the BMP put out, which was a, a, a four-page A4 leaflet. And on the back of one of the pages was 10 things you should know about Margaret Hodge. And then just horrible, horrible stuff. Lots of lies, pretty anti-Semitic, but pretty horrible stuff. Racist, horrible stuff. Um, and I had it out there. And my assistant, who was at that time working with me on the anti-Semitism campaign, said, what's that? And I said, oh, that's an old BMP leaflet from 2009. And he said, my God, that has been cut and pasted and is being used by the hard left to attack you now on social media in the uh, battle against anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So the extreme right and the extreme left have more in common, really, than we like to imagine could be the case. And so is it, though, is it that work that you're most proud of, the two things together? No. no. I'm very proud, you'll laugh at this, of the stuff I did in, in Islington. As, yeah. um, I, we, we built the biggest housing programme in the country. And then, of course, I mean, this is because I've been an MP forever, so you're going to have to shut me up, Matt. <laughs> My time as Public Accounts Committee Chair. Well, I yeah, think I was, was going to ask about that. Yeah. Because you, you were the sort of the scourge of the tax dodgers. You'd haul them into the, the committee and shout at them. <laughs> and you were very good at, at doing that. Do you, did you change enough? Are, are, are more companies paying tax in the UK now than did 
before you started haranguing? Interesting enough, I did that job after the, I'd won the um, election against the BNP, mm. and that really informed the way I did it because it, I was constantly thinking, what would the, what would the good burgers of Barking and Dagdom want me to ask? And, you know, sort of you tend to get professionals appearing before you, they hide behind technocratic language. And I'm probably old enough, so confident enough to say, I don't understand what that means. We say, in the, you know, <laughs> just say it in words that anybody can understand. So there was a, quite a lot of that around it. Did I change the world enough? I think on tax, I mean, that's the area that I now focus on, mm. dirty money and, and all that. And I've been on your program and yeah. done that a couple of times. But I think what we transformed was when I started the work, literally I remember one academic saying to me, this is all too technical for you, you can't understand it, Margaret. And I thought, mm, because tax belongs to all of us, we all pay it, and therefore we should all understand it and have a say in how it's, how it's raised and how it's spent. Uh, so I just wasn't prepared to accept that. And when I started, it was seen to be cool to avoid tax, you know, you were a clever, cool person to avoid it. And the same went for corporate companies. I think that has changed. And I think that's no longer seen as cool. People are, are, are hide their dirty money now. But has enough changed? No, that's why I'm carrying that's on. Why you're still going. Yeah. And let's I, talk, let's talk about some of the negative. We, what, what part of the job or moment did you enjoy the least? I think when I was children's minister and. Um, I felt really unfairly my record in Islington in relation to uh, children's homes was horribly misinterpreted, but I, you know, it was a horrible, horrible period. It's very difficult to put into context, but when, we, when I was in Islington, it was my last period in Islington, Evening Standard ran a story about paedophiles in our children's homes, and it's difficult to go back to those, that era. But in that era, this is 1990, I don't think any of us under, really understood about paedophilia. I don't, just don't think we did. And when they raised these issues, I raised them with the police, I raised them with social services, and they all said, nothing is, is happening. And the culture at that time, it's difficult to put yourself back in it because it's so awful. The culture at the time is that the kids in care were probably naughty children, so they weren't telling the truth, Margaret. And my real anger with myself is I didn't listen to the children. You know, it's another lesson I learned in politics. But then when I became children's minister, some of the people who had been abused in Islington's children home and who were rightly cross with us, and you know, I was the boss at that time, so took a lot of stick. Um, they tried to raise it that I was unfit to be children's minister. And that was a horrible time. In fact, I do remember everybody was after me. Number 10 said, the pack's after you, right? You know what this is like. And I thought, oh, life's too short, I'm giving up. So I left my meeting in number 10, went home to write my resignation letter, got a phone call from Tony Blair's office and said, because I hadn't done anything wrong, but Tony Blair's office saying, you can't, you shouldn't go, Margaret, you know. So I said, all right, I'll give it another 24 hours, see if it settles down. And we were cooped up in my house and we'd run out of milk. So my daughter went out to get a pint of milk so we could make a cup of tea. And she came back and she said, Mum, there's only three of them out there, you know, because we had the pack outside. Shall I offer them a cup of tea? So I said, OK, there's only three of them. Go and offer them a cup of tea. She went out, offered a cup of tea. Another 20 jumped out of the white van. <laughs> <laughs> so she scuttled back indoors. But I did survive that. But it was a very, very, very painful, tough time. And what about being university's minister and tuition fees? Was that well, a tough time? 
It's, it's very interesting, this, right? So I think the policy as we promoted it was probably not right. I think the way it's evolved has proved a you know, right, right old disaster for universities and for students. But at that time, the people who really went to university, and in fact it's true today, are middle class people. So all this government money was going in to support the middle class achieving at the higher education. And if you're a Labour Party socialist, de democratic socialist, and you really want to transform the people's life chances, you want the money in the early years when you really can change it. I felt quite confident, I mean, I got a lot of stick for it, but I felt confident in the argument that we wanted to focus our money on transforming people's life chances and that students from middle-class backgrounds could get support from their families and graduates would always earn more and therefore could contribute back to the state. What went wrong was that shift from it being a contribution to it being the funding of the total fee. And I now chair a university and it is a um, higher education finance is in dire straits. It's in a terrible mess. Uh, but the fee hasn't gone up since 2016. So actually for most universities now, funding their domestic students, it costs them more than they get in the fee. So, it, you know, you then turn to international students and really, are universities there to just earn the money to get international students or are we there to provide a public service in our, in our communities? So do, you, do you regret it? Was that a mistake, introducing tuition fees in the way that you did? I think the way we did, what we probably didn't understand, I mean, yeah, we should have gone for a graduate tax, right? And the reason we didn't go for a graduate tax was actually even at that time when money was much more freely available, the investment up front was massive and you only started getting the money back about 20 years down the line, literally on the, all the calculations that we were making, that's what it was showing. So it just didn't seem fair when you were trying, even at that time, money was never freely available. We wanted the money in early years yeah. and a graduate tax, which actually Gordon wanted and Tony wanted to go for the tuition fee uh, route, uh, graduate tax just didn't seem yeah. a viable option. Well, ironically, if you'd done it now, it'd be up and running and it would be working properly. Now it would be. Yeah. And now we're in a disaster area. What a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Margaret Hodge, last couple of questions on your exit interview. Would you recommend your role to a friend? Yeah, I think it's very different. Um, uh, I think you've got to be tough. I think well, when people say to me, how do you manage it? I've managed down the years. I said to you, my first death threat was in 1976, mm -hmm. when actually the, the result of getting that was I went back to smoking again, which I then gave up again. <laughs> but that was my response to you it at the time. I thought I'd do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So, but if you want to change the world, and if, you, you know, if you're driven to make the world a better place, for your children, your grandchildren, and for people you care about. And if you want to create a more equal society, there is no better way than doing it yeah. than through politics. So the final question then, what are you going to do next? Um, God, I, I just hope I've got enough life left. <laughs> so I want, I mean, on a, on a personal level, I've got four kids, I've got 12 grandkids, I play the piano, I'm a culture vulture, um, I love travel, I love cooking, so that I've got plenty of that, but I also chair a university. Uh, so I put my energy into that. I chair a theatre. I'm a visiting professor at King's College, so I want to do some more writing. Yeah. That'd be to do that. And I'm hoping to chair a charity in Barking to keep my links with Barking. Wow. So this definitely isn't retirement for Margaret Hodge. Um, I don't think you ever retire if you want to carry on living. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Margaret Hodge, thanks so much for joining us on the Exit Interviews. Thank you.
all we've got time for on today's episode. We'll have another exit interview on the podcast next week. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Listen live on the radio Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, and get in touch. Email me, Matt, at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.